In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God is your Father. And this is both a spiritual and a physical reality. Adopted through baptism, you are all sons of God by faith, co-heirs with Christ, the Son of God. But also, as it is told in the genealogy of Jesus in St. Luke, our father Adam is son of God. And St. Paul tells us in Ephesians that every family in heaven and on earth has been named by or from the Father. In other words, by virtue of your membership in the human race, God is your Father. God, we know, is also the King, the ruler of his kingdom. And so he is, in a word, a patriarch. Now, patriarch is just the combination of the words pater, or father, and arcane, or to rule. In other words, patriarchy means rule of the father. That means that every person lives in a physical patriarchy. Every Christian lives in a spiritual patriarchy under our Father in heaven. Now, those who bear the mantle of fatherhood, we know can be good or bad. There are good fathers and there are bad fathers. The same, by the way, can be said of other kinds of fathers, like pastors and teachers and governing authorities. Fathers can rule well for the benefit of those under their care, or fathers can be absent and apathetic, harsh and vindictive, cruel and abusive. And when sin is involved, that latter kind of father seems a lot more prevalent. Being sinned against is painful, and even more so when it's the one who is supposed to protect you. In your life, at some point, a human father has sinned against you, and every kind of human father is infected with sin, And he will, at one time or another, misuse his authority, misapply discipline, or shirk his duties. And so because of sin, all patriarchy that you see is stained by sin. But the world will go further. Patriarchy, the world says, is toxic by its very definition. You are oppressed by it, and you must dismantle it. Only then will you be free from its oppression over you. This sermon the world preaches isn't new. You hear it in the voice of the serpent. Yes, I know what God said, but you will not surely die. In fact, God is holding out on you. The devil wants you to believe that your father in heaven is a liar. He is unfair. He is a tyrant. He is an evil father, the first toxic patriarch. 
God is there to restrict your behavior and destroy your fun with his harsh, unbending, arbitrary rules. And if this is the nature of God's patriarchy, then no patriarchy can be redeemed. It must be overthrown and destroyed. So cast off his rule. Find true freedom. Freedom to live your life the way that you want. To choose to go your own way. But when Adam and Eve have followed this path, and forsaken their father and his word. They find themselves not free from all rule, but under another ruler. They are now members of the devil's kingdom, slaves to their own desires, and they cannot free themselves from their sinful condition. They had forgotten about the life from the other tree, eat and live forever, Instead, they chose to eat of the tree with God's promise attached, eat and die forever. It is as God had said. Now, under the kingdom of their new father, they receive all the benefits of his reign. Spiritual death that causes pain and thorns and thistles and work that is necessary to sustain life. And finally, physical death. These are his gifts, theft and adultery and murder and broken relationships. This is your inheritance, a reputation stained by lies, the desire to gossip about others and to have their things, and finally, hell. And salvation remains out of your reach. By this infection of sin, you have become less like your Father in heaven and more like the Father of lies. You, in a sense, have become less human. Adam hadn't simply brought trouble into the world. God had given Adam dominion over the world, and he used that dominion to hand the world over to the devil. So now even Adam's own fatherhood would be like that of Satan, self-seeking, self-preserving, and oppressive. And so it would be for you, sons and daughters of Adam. You do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things, looking to him for the source of all good. And even when you know better, You're under this strange compulsion to act against what God has said and what you know to be for your own good. And so from all this, the truth becomes evident. You will have a father and you will live under his rule. That is to say, you will live in a patriarchy. Either you will belong to the kingdom of Christ and live under his father, or you will belong to the kingdom of darkness and live under the father of lies. And yet, even amid all this darkness and despair, in the midst of all these curses against Adam and Eve and the world, 
there is this promise. The seed of the woman will come. He will crush the head of the serpent who holds you under his tyranny. Thus, in our gospel today, it is this seed of the woman who goes face to face with the devil. Right before this, he is baptized. The sins of the world are placed on his head, and he is anointed as the Savior who will bear all your sins away. In his baptism, he makes this pledge to every sinner. I have come to fix what you have broken. I will make things right. I will restore you to your rightful father. I will restore you to being truly human. And so dripping with the water of his baptism, he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As the representative of all mankind, he will do battle and fight on your behalf. He will regain what had been lost. And although he is not just like God, he is God. He is also man. And in him we begin to see what it truly means to be man. For true man lives by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Father's word alone. The devil wants to steal God's word from you. That's how he gets you to overthrow your Father in heaven. It's how he devours Christians. The devil tempts in these three ways. He tempts to doubt, to misquote, and to discard God's word. In these temptations to Jesus, the devil says, if you are the Son of God. And Satan isn't just asking Jesus to question his identity. He wants Jesus to doubt the word that his father had spoken to him at his baptism when he said, you are my beloved son. He wants Jesus to believe that his father is a liar. This is how the tempter entices you. He wants you to doubt God's word and promises and he'll tempt you in subtle and overt ways. God couldn't mean exactly what he said, could he? I mean, he wants me to be happy, right? Surely God's word doesn't cover the specifics of my situation. Certainly he would make an exception, at least once. But God's word is not your tool to choose to wield how you would like. It's his word. And so Jesus, who is true God, and also true man born of the Virgin Mary, is tempted in every way as you are, and yet without sin. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the tempter comes with the most reasonable-sounding temptation. Turn these stones into bread and eat something. After fasting 40 days, we get one of the biggest understatements of the gospel. Jesus was hungry. 
He had set aside his divine powers. He needed food to sustain his body. Without food, he will die. But Jesus will not eat the way that fallen man does. He will not eat in the way that the tempter invites. And this, by the way, is one of the other points that we should notice about this temptation. That the tempter offers Jesus something that is good. Bread isn't evil. Hunger is our most basic bodily appetite. Hunger is the way that your body asks you for food so that you don't die. But embedded in this temptation is something far more sinister. It's the temptation for Jesus to seek something that God hadn't given, to seek after the needs of this life apart from the Father's will. If your God and Father is so pleased with you, why do you suffer, Jesus? You have the power to end your suffering. Make it go away, and you can be free. Isn't that often how temptations come to you? Do and take what you want now and satisfy the longings of your flesh and you will be happy. Now, though those things may satisfy for the moment, even moments later, you often find them unsatisfying. And you know that they certainly will not satisfy you in the hour of death or in the day of judgment. But Jesus knows that man does not live by seeking bread alone. His life comes from the Lord's word. No, tempter, I have not come to satisfy my own fleshly hunger. I came to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And my God and Father will sustain me by his word. Well, clearly the temptation for bread didn't work. Now comes the temptation with angels. And here the devil will use God's word. But he misquotes the text. He leaves out part of the verse and he quotes it out of context. If you keep reading Psalm 91, even as we prayed this morning, you will see that God promises deliverance from the serpent, from the devil himself. The devil, it seems, made a pretty dumb choice with this psalm. And God doesn't promise to guard you with his angels no matter what. He says that he will guard you in all your ways. That's the part the devil ignored. Your Father in heaven will guard you according to your place and station in life and according to the Ten Commandments. You aren't going to confirm God's love toward you by testing him, demanding that your Father fit himself to your system of doctrine not receiving God's word as he gives it, testing his goodness and mercy as though the gospel itself needed to be confirmed, as though the word of God and its preaching are insufficient for faith. Every error and heresy in the world has come about by misquoting God's word. 
And so always beware of the devil coming to you with God's word. He will twist and misquote and misuse it. And so just because someone quotes you the Bible, it doesn't automatically mean that what they say is true. But look to Jesus. He again quotes from Deuteronomy, and he refuses to put the Lord his God and Father to the test. He refuses to read the scriptures like the devil does. And then comes this final temptation, the most overt and brazen and absurd of them all. Worship Satan. Now, it seems strange to think of this invitation as tempting to Jesus. It's not as though he really wants to think of Satan as his God. But notice what Satan is offering. The kingdoms of the world, this is actually something that Jesus desires. He has come into the world to gain all of these kingdoms. But Jesus must gain them by his suffering and death. He must pay the debt that we have earned by our sins and buy us back from the father of lies. He cannot gain them in any other way. But Satan will offer them to Jesus in this way, without suffering, without blood, without sweat, without pain and cross, without death. All these can be yours, Jesus. Bend your knee toward me for just a moment. What's the harm? Who takes worship all that seriously anyway? But Jesus knows that bending the knee is no trifle. Worship is no small thing. He will take the more difficult path. He will keep his Father's word. He will follow his Father's will. He will wait for his father to give to him according to his good and gracious will. Thus, he follows the Lord's word and will all the way to the cross, taking your sin and dying on that tree. And so you see this victor over Satan and sin and death is one of you, one of your own flesh. He has taken you from the kingdom of the devil into his Father's kingdom. And even so, even redeemed from the Father of lies and brought back by the blood of Jesus to your true Father, Satan isn't going to give you up very easily. How easily do you find yourself putting your hope and worth in in created things and putting your faith in the wrong God? The devil's temptations to you continue. He wants you back in his kingdom. His assaults come day after day after day after day, opposing your life in Christ Jesus. And the devil, well, he always means business. So what will you do? Well, when Jesus came... He didn't come to restore your ability to choose between good and evil. Nor does he come and show you how it's done, stepping out of the way so that you can save yourself. 
Rather, Jesus puts you into a new existence in him. He gives you a new heart in the waters of holy baptism. And you are adopted. New life, new light, new hope, new strength. The Christian life is a battle from beginning to end. A fight against the world, the devil, and your own sinful flesh. It started in Eden, and you were enlisted in it in your own baptism. You participate in this battle, but not by fighting on your own, but by being joined to and participating in Jesus' victory. In this, his victory is yours. In baptism, you are joined to his death and thus also his resurrection. And you participate with him in his victory over the devil. Even so, you are not going to outmaneuver or outsmart the devil by your own reason and strength. He's stronger and smarter than you are. And so instead, give him God's word. Send him to Jesus. With Christ, you are called to live by faith, to face evil and temptation, but not as though their defeat is up to you. Rather, because the devil and his lies have already been defeated, you are given the courage to fight alongside your Lord Jesus. Now, the other traditional Old Testament lesson for today is the battle between David and Goliath. The example in that account isn't that you are David, the underdog. In fact, David himself was not the underdog because he had God on his side. But what we do follow is the example of the Israelite army after the defeat of Goliath. In the face of their enemy's death, the Israelite soldiers who were formerly afraid find the courage to fight and destroy the rest of the enemy army because they know that their victory is certain. Trust that there is hope and victory to come because the victory of your Lord's cross stands behind you. Fight in this battle knowing you already have the victory in Christ Jesus. He took that fight all the way to the cross, crushing the devil's head with his bruised heel. His victory is your victory. Every commandment is fulfilled by Jesus and credited by faith in him to you. So no matter what sin you have done, Jesus pays for it. He says, I will be the sinner. You go free. That bitter record of your broken promises is wiped clean. That misery of your own guilt is covered. The shame of sins that have been committed against you are blotted out by his own blood. And so in him, you live in your father's kingdom. You love and serve your heavenly father and rejoice in his fatherly grace and mercy. He is the good father. His kingdom is a good patriarchy. And so you pray the Our Father. You ask for daily bread, confidently trusting that he will grant it. 
You pray that he will deliver you from evil. And he answers all of your requests. Every petition of that prayer, he stands with you, saving you, giving you the word from the mouth of God that sustains you, and his body and blood given to you to eat and to drink. By yourself you are weak, but in him you are strong. And your Lord Jesus won't abandon you to your own resolve and strength. Your good and gracious Father, who knows what you need, will give to you as a dear father gives to his dear children. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.